episode 1117, The Criterion Challenge, The Red Shoes. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben Bono, and we're back. We're back. Now, listeners, this is an ongoing series over on the Extra Feed, but we have a lot going on today on all the different feeds, so Main Feed gets this one tonight. So the yeah. Criterion Challenge, just in case you don't know what that is, a few weeks back, no, months back, Ben listed out his 110 favorite films from the entire Criterion Collection, which he has watched every film up until whatever month is they recently did new releases right right which so, is every month i guess yeah but you're fairly caught up yeah like, i mean it's gonna be a rolling catch-up but i'm i'd say i'm effectively caught up right. at this point so i wish i had that episode in front of me but the point is after ben provided us with that list of 110 i or he had a list on letterbox which i cloned and i'm kind of going through the list and so over on the extra feed we are periodically not weekly but periodically doing something we call the Criterion Challenge, which is my challenge to watch Ben's 110 films. And then we'll do some brief... I, I do think there will probably be some additions to that 110 because I think there's a few things I know I've forgotten. And then I, when I made the list, for example, Orson Welles' adaptation of The Trial wasn't out yet. And it now is. It's now part of the collection. And it, it's I've seen it before, but it's excellent. Yeah, so some of the reviews are brief. Some are longer conversations. For example, when we talked about Persona, we had to tie in... Mulholland Drive, but wait a second. Did we do that here, or was that on the extra feed? I, I think, think that was the extra feed. I think that was it. We talked about Three Women, uh, Robert Altman's yeah. film. So that one got to be a little longer. Um, but then when we talked about Lay Samurai... It was pretty quick. Yeah, that one's a little shorter. So this one, a few weeks back, we talked about La Dolce Vita. And I had some thoughts. Ben had some disagreeing thoughts. But I hadn't watched it recently enough to really art- articulate... And so I rewatched La Dolce Vita, and then we both watched The Great Beauty. Right, because you said they're, they... They're very tied together yes. thematically. And then on top of all that, The Red Shoes is one that Ben's been recommending for, I think, years at years. this point. So we are going to talk... We're going to talk about The Red Shoes, but then La Dolce Vita... And I, I really want... When we get into La Dolce Vita and, and The Great Beauty, and I read your review of both, and I know you didn't like either of them, but I think there's... I'm less concerned about trying to convince you to like them. I want you to see what you're missing because I do think you're missing something. All right. So with them. In, just in conclusion for the intro listeners, in case you're interested, we had a long talk on La Dolce Vita over in the extra feed, but we haven't talked about The Great Beauty yet. So the second half of this episode, will be talking about those two films, but let's kick it off with The Red Shoes. Yeah. So The Red Shoes. Uh, Why? It, it, it's... So this was like early on in my Criterion viewing because I think it's it's spine forty or forty one. It's fairly early in there, and it was one that I I remember when I put it in. This was like one of those seminal moments where I realized this is going to be a great experience because I wasn't looking forward to it because it looked dumb. It's like right. a ballet movie. And right. I watch it and it blows me away. Yeah, this is what I wanted to ask you as a starting is why did this one hit you in such a big way? And I think it's what you're describing. It you had almost no expectations to of enjoying this and then it ends up being five stars to you yeah yeah and i think that it's uh, it was a number of things for me i mean a it's the expectations versus what you get and then being blown away in a good way with that um it is an extraordinarily well-regarded film it's i think martin scorsese 
if if it's not his favorite, it's consistently ranked in his top films every decade when he votes in the sight and sound. And they let him and a couple of other prominent filmmakers actually do twenty movies for the the voting this time. Um, but he he's always ranked uh, the Red Shoes very very highly. And I've mentioned this before. People are like, oh, Martin Scorsese. Well, old man yells at Cloud because he doesn't like Marvel. Yeah, Martin Scorsese isn't just this great director. If you take all of his directing out, his contribution to film study is a career in and of itself. So the guy knows what he's talking about. Uh, the Powell and Pressburger team, the Archers, lots of great films. You watched uh, Matter of Life and Death. That's one of theirs. Um, you know, and not every one of theirs is, is a knockout, but this one, uh, Top of the Heat, Black Narcissus, uh, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. I'm a huge fan of uh, Matter of Life and Death. You know, the Archers are... are a name in filmmaking that you should know and be familiar with. I think it's a triumph of um, the cinematography, Technicolor. I've brought this up before that if you want to be sold on Technicolor from the way a film should look, uh, and I think we, I hate the fact that we've gone away from Technicolor because it, it just looks so good. It looks so much better. Uh, and this is, to me, one of the films I always come back to in sight as like, Technicolor. This is why you want to be a fan of it. Hey, you're saying Archers. Who is that? Uh, Powell and Pressburger. Why? Why the Archers? Was that? I, I don't. I don't know where it came from, but that's what they called themselves. So that directing team. That directing team referred to themselves as the Archers. Okay. So yeah, if you watch their movies, there's usually a little title card that has like a bow and arrow hitting a target, okay. and uh, so the archers. And I'm sure there's a background to it. I don't know what the story is, but if you hear, you'll hear Powell and Pressburger and the archers used uh, interchangeably. Well, good news, Ben. Even though I don't, oh, I don't a lot appreciate the movies we're going to talk about at the end of this episode. I loved the Red Shoes. I know you did. Four and a half stars. I mean, close to a five, but. Four and a half to start off with. And I actually have a present for you. I didn't bring it in because I forgot it in the yeah. car. But I just upgraded to the 4K of the Red Shoes. I'm not upgrading every criterion to 4K yeah. as they come out, but some of them, like where this one is just so visually appealing, I did upgrade it because I love it. So I, I, I have my old Blu-ray Criterion That's copy great. for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I, if I... if. You remember you can come out, otherwise it will sit in my car for a week. I'll walk you <laughs> I will get yeah, it in great. there eventually. Yeah, I... Yeah, I of course, just the if you just take it at face value, it was an enjoyable experience. The story yeah. is good, visuals are good, but there's also some surreal things happening. Yeah. Listeners will know I, I enjoy that. So I had some questions for you. You may have seen in my review. I don't exactly know everything that happened. This is one of those cases where I love the experience, but I I left there exactly like Mulholland Drive, where everything's great. I know I'm missing something. Yeah, and I think it is it's kind of that dreamlike experience and it's it's interacting with, you know, another thing I know you like is kind of the metafictional level of things and mm-hmm. it is interacting with that like the red shoes as a fairy tale and as a ballet yeah. exists clearly in this film, but then it's interacting with the themes of that that fairy tale on a meta level. And so yeah, there's some surrealism going on in terms of what's actually happening and how the themes of the the story play out in quote unquote real life within there. Yeah. Is there anything supernatural happening in this film as far as you can tell? I I don't know. You know, I I don't think it forces that interpretation, but it allows for that interpretation. Because in the confines of the ballet the the shoes have power right but outside of the ballet in the universe that of the 
characters were watching, it seemed like maybe the shoes had power there too. It, exactly, and I think that's that's one of the marks of a great film is you can enjoy it on many different levels. Oh, I forgot to say spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> it is from 1948. I do think, and I I don't know if you've seen this, and if you did, I'm sure you didn't enjoy it, but Darren Aronofsky's movie Black Swan... No, I haven't seen that. ...is very indebted to this, and, and that I think is more overtly supernatural in its themes and i'm not sure if i'll say it just tell me a little bit about it and you can a little bit cross into some spoilers if you want but you don't have to yeah so black or at least a black swan so black swan uh and i i hate when people describe things this way but i'm going to do it like if you had mulholland drive and the red shoes had a baby that baby would be black swan so it's very similar themes of that there's a ballet and there's the obsessive director of the ballet and there's the star um, but then there's also you know Natalie Portman plays the star ballerina but then Mila Kunis's character in there is, so you get the whole two women dualism thing coming from Mulholland Drive and and we explored that genre in depth um, may or may not be a second side of herself hmm. so She's ostensibly this rival ballerina for the lead role in The Black Swan, but she might also just be the dark side of Natalie Portman's character. And so there's some supernatural, surrealistic things going on there as well. Okay. I, I don't know. Yeah, I said I didn't think you would enjoy it. I don't think you would just because it's a little bit more disturbing, but you might enjoy having seen it, okay. if that makes sense. All right. Uh, what were your biggest takeaways when you think about like you went into this movie not expecting to like it all of the, the sudden you're in love with it you said Technicolor what else just really won you over yeah it's the story it's the themes it's the acting it's the you know I think if you're to distill kind of the old filmmaking like like you know the cliche of they don't make them like that anymore they don't make them like that anymore like there's something that's just the 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 purity of the 40s 50s hollywood drama that's just distilled in this movie uh before we get you know and and i love plenty of things about this era but the more cynical 60s and 70s movies the the rise of pop culture like there's this era in filmmaking where it's advanced enough beyond the silent film era and the color era and and but yet hasn't totally been taken over by hmm either cynicism on the one side or corporation pop culture in this film exists there. yeah so this year this film came out in the year 1948 if you had to just without preparing just throw out a time frame what years would you say you're talking for, for about that yeah 40s and 50s okay yeah 40s and 50s for sure and and again it's not taking anything away from great cinema that happened later i think you know obviously my favorite film of all time 2001 is is in the 60s and you can go through it's like most of probably a lot of my my top films are in the 60s and 70s uh tarkovsky's working in in that time and you know ingmar bergman is is well, earlier than that, but also during that time period, making some of his best work. Persona might be in the 60s. It's either late 50s or early 60s. And so, you, you know, you have that. But I think that if you really want, you know, like thinking of kind of things like It's a Wonderful Life as being sort of on the bleeding edge of that, um, you know, the, the, arty, the art form has matured enough where you can have films like this but 
hasn't yet been collapsed into what it would become later for good or, or ill. And so it's a unique period. I made an observation during this film, and I'm wondering if it's correct or what you think about it. It felt like the filmmakers were pushing the limits of what you could do with film, given the fact that it's 1948. So yeah. to us, maybe not as big of a deal, but as you're watching it, imagining that world, it felt like they were really pushing things. Am I correct in that? I, I think you are. And it's so much more interesting to watch that happen than it is now. Like, oh, there's new CGI. Well, okay, we've seen, uh, outside of like the early CGI and, and some seminal jumps forward, you know, early CGI, I'm thinking of like uh, Jurassic Park and Terminator 2, obviously, were astonishing with what they did. And then something like The Matrix was that jump forward or Gollum and Lord of the Rings were that fully realized character. So CGI's had its moments. I don't want to describe, you know, dismiss it entirely, but there was you know, pre-CGI, when you pulled stuff off, you really pulled it off. And it's impressive. It's why, you know, the great biblical epics, the Ten Commandments are so impressive. Like, those aren't computer-generated extras. Mm. Those are people. Or, you know, even like in uh, A New Hope, uh, the matte paintings are just incredible. And they give it a verisimilitude that you don't have otherwise with CGI. I, I, I just love... Uh, that part of filmmaking, and, and I think it's largely been lost in the name of expedience and cost savings. What do you think is actually happening during that initial scene where we're seeing the Red Shoes Ballet, and all of a sudden it just gets wacky? <laughs> no, what I, I think my first interpretation, probably the one I feel the strongest about, is we're seeing the ballet, but not in the same way the viewers are. We're seeing it as if we're actually in the midst of that story. Yeah. Uh, but but the audience is just seeing a regular ballet, not all the like, special effects things that we're seeing. I, I so, think that's probably correct. Because the other interpretation is something surreal and dreamlike is happening here, like where it's crossing the boundaries of what's, what's really happening to Vicky and what's not. But see, this is where what I'm more interested in from an interpretive standpoint is that the filmmakers are trying to get you into that space between. Like, they're trying to get you into that. And it's, it's like, what actually happens in the story is, is the least interesting thing there. Hmm. So, of course, we're doing all spoilers, listeners. So this is the big last yeah, spoiler. It's an 80-year-old movie. At the end too. of this movie, she's dead, right? Yeah. There, it did seem like they, were, they left it open for the possibility that she could come back. But I think the Red story... Red Shoes too. Not that necessarily, but just... The, that maybe it was a moderately okay ending rather than a tragedy. But if I'm just looking at the narrative and uh, guessing where it would be heading, it ends in tragedy. Yeah, she she's dead at the end. All right. Well, sure. That's too bad. All right. Well, I loved it. Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fantastic. I know it's been out there outside of your recommendation, but for me, you're the first I'd heard of it. So we talked about Martin Scorsese's favorite movie, and then... We have to talk about Roger Ebert's favorite movie. La Dolce Vita. La Dolce Vita. Which we did talk about already. So but we did. But you, I, you rewatched it. So. But why don't we start with, because uh, I know you watched The Great Beauty, and it seems like you kind of had a similar. They're very meh. similar, just like you said. Very thematically similar. I like this one. I like Great Beauty a little more. But let me give you some of my complaints about La Dolce Vita. I'm guessing you still like it. I just I, thought. I adore it. <laughs> I adore both these movies. So I said on the other episode, it's just meandering. This guy's just going from one thing to the next. The story isn't. Like a lot of what we see does not matter. Like we're, we're introduced to characters we spend a few minutes with, and and then all of a sudden they're gone, and that just is nonstop. It's like all these little yeah. scenes that don't 
lead to anything, and then the movie ends. Go on. Well, that, that's my big. Oh, that, that's my initial. Okay. What, what about with uh, with great beauty? Oh, sa- S- uh, same thing. Uh, actually, all I said about this was, you know what? I can see I was I was planning to write more here, and I never did go back and and add anything else. But uh, you know, I like that it had the feel of a Baz Luhrmann movie. Do you did you agree with that? I, I haven't watched any Baz what? Luhrmann. You've never seen Moulin Rouge? No. Let me think of another one. <laughs> You've never seen Romeo and Juliet? No. Okay, you're positive you've never seen anything. No, nothing. Great Gatsby? No. Wow, I'm surprised. Do you, are you purposely avoiding that director? No. Okay, I just, I'd recommend Moulin Rouge. Anyway, right. okay, well, that's all I've got then. I don't have a lot to say about Great Beauty. Same, I guess, uh, oh, but, a little more interesting. Yeah, but same type of thing. But it felt like that. But it did feel like the characters actually there was like follow through on some character stories. Whereas in La Dolce Vita. We're meeting all sorts of people that are there for a second and then gone. And here's some more people that are there for a second and then they're gone. I, what am I supposed to care about? Yeah, so, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll give you I'll give you my reactions a little bit and then I want to talk about the fil- films together and then separately. La Dolce Vita is the better movie. Um, it It is just a masterpiece of structure and the way the number of levels that you can enjoy and appreciate La Dolce Vita on is is pretty exquisite and I'll talk about some of those in a minute um but I will say the great beauty like I finished it last night and the ending just it left me shook like that ending of that movie is extraordinarily powerful um and Paolo Sorrentino in in both The Great Beauty and I've seen a couple of his other movies and then the the Young Pope and New Pope um uh, miniseries on HBO like he has the ability to reach and find a single image that just drills into you and sticks with you and the ending of The Great Beauty with the and this isn't a spoiler because it's just it, there's nothing plot related here but that image of the old ancient nun crawling her way up these stairs and the the painting of Christ at the top and then the the voiceover which I'm going to read in just a little bit when we talk about that one more in depth is just it's so haunting and there like there's so much power in that filmmaking and not a lot of filmmakers can pull that off. I would actually say you mentioned Baz Luhrmann and I don't have anything to say about that because I haven't seen his movies. Um, I think there's aspects of the great beauty that remind me of Terrence Malick, Hmm. honestly, with the way that he approaches this. I think I could see that. And I think that there, you know, there's something very appealing about that to me. um, Even though I do think, La Dolce Vita is the better film. So let's talk a little bit about these two films as a whole. So abstract away from the actual films. Wait, before we move away from The Great Beauty. Well, we're going to come back to it. I, I uh, wrote myself a placeholder note that I was going to write more about that I never did. Just Yeah. To, and so I wrote this note while the movie's wrapping up. It's not over, but it's wrapping up. It's before he talks to the nun. Yeah. And I just wrote down that he's looking... That's the main, he's I mean, looking for he's something. looking for something and yeah. I wrote that before the movie actually ended because by the end of the movie I think we kind of find out what he's looking for maybe maybe he maybe. finds it maybe do you, so by the, do you want to talk a little bit about it? what is he looking for and does he find it so I'm glad you brought that up because I did read your review and I didn't know that was just a passing note so I thought that was the review with three stars but it was a, 
an astonishingly great observation Thank on you. your part Thank you. for both of these movies because that's really what they are at the heart of it. So I, th- I think, though, to understand these films, you have to first understand Rome not as a historical concept or a geographical concept or as a political concept, but as a mythological concept for what Rome means to Western civilization. You know, so Rome, the eternal city, right, is is this fascinating crossroads historically, religiously, politically of deep corruption and also the the lifeblood of Western Christianity, you know, and, and those are existing simultaneously at the same time. I mean, I'm Catholic, so obviously the Vatican's a big deal there, but I'm also a eyes-open Catholic who agrees with um, Father Morth, uh, the Vatican's chief exorcist who died a few years ago when he said that Satan lives in the Vatican. Like, those <laughs> exist simultaneously. There's remarkable corruption, and that's been the case for 2,000 years. Like, like, you know, Rome as the seat of Christianity, no, it was the opposite of that. It was the the foot that was starting to stamp out the early church. And I've shared the likely uh, apocryphal, but nevertheless powerful story of um, Peter leaving Rome at the uh, persecution, and he sees a vision of Jesus heading the other way. And he asks him, where are you going? And Jesus tells him, I'm going to Rome to be crucified again. And Peter turns around and follows him to his martyrdom. Now, again, is that historically what happened? Probably not. But why does the church tell that story? Because it says something powerful about the church's relationship to this city. And it's like this tension in the city of Rome has existed for 2,000 years. You know, St. Peter's Basilica, I read a great book, I think it's called Basilica or The Basilica, about the construction of it you know, and Michelangelo's artwork and and the Sistine Chapel and all of this. And this is some of the most transcendent, beautiful artwork that's ever existed. Like, it lifts the soul to God, and it is commissioned by some of the most corrupt, evil men who have ever run the Vatican. You know, and so that tension exists. Like, it's just deep into the foundation of Rome. And... It exists all the way up through the modernist and now postmodern era, which these two films are dealing with. And so what you have in Rome is this eternal tension that says, none of this is true. I'm going to slough it off and live my life. And then the voice comes into the back of your head, but what if it is? And there's a tension there. And neither of these directors, neither of whom is a believer... In, in any meaningful sense, they're both wrestling with that same idea of the modern age has dawned. We don't need the superstitions of the church anymore. Thank God. Throw off the shackles and live your life. But what if it's true? And both the main characters in these films, Marcello in La Dolce Vita and Jeff in The Great Beauty, are wrestling with that tension. They're leading hedonistic lives, um, and they are dealing with, but yet they are drawn back 
to a desire for something that's actually meaningful. They can't escape the shadow of the church that they want to outrun. So in the case of the Dolce Vita, you mentioned like this whole episodic structure, and, and that's actually intentional. One of the things that's fascinating about La Dolce Vita is that you can enjoy the film just watching it, and or in your case, not enjoy it, because clearly this approach did not work for you, which is totally <laughs> fair. Like, again, I'm not trying to convince you to like it. I want you to see what there is to appreciate right. there. Um, and just kind of let it wash over you as a dream. You know, very dreamlike things are moving in and out. It's the, you know, the tension of Rome and, and these themes are passing over you. But you can also really go heavy left hemisphere on this and break it down structurally. The film has a very careful structure. There is an introduction. There is a conclusion. There's an interlude. And then there are seven episodes throughout, all of which make up, you know, some of these encounters you're talking about where a character shows up and they do the thing and then they, they disappear. And I mentioned Dante when we were talking about this on the extra feed because they're very Dante-esque uh, in the sense that what we're seeing is Marcello engages in something that brings him down the hedonistic road. It seems like it's working. It seems like it's going to bring meaning into his life. And then it collapses and every one of these seven ends with Contrapasso. Remember, the contrapasso concept from Dante, from the Inferno, is that the punishment for the sin is crafted after the nature of the sin. So Fellini is working with the concept of contrapasso throughout these seven episodes. You know, for example, the, the, the great scene uh, in the second episode where the movie star from America shows up and we have the, the, the iconic scene in the Trevi Fountain with them that's just... And boy, you want to talk about things to just appreciate in this film, like the cinematography and like that image of them in the fountain is one of the great cinematic moments in in, in film history. But why? It's the passion of it. It's the emotion of it. It's the, uh, you know, the way that it's framed. It's the acting. It's, the mu it's all the things you want in cinema. But then thematically, it collapses. Why? Because the new day dawns. And her lover shows up, and he beats up Marcello. It's contrapasso. He has to deal with the consequence. The fantasy collapses. And that's very cinematic as well, because cinema is all about creating the fantasy that doesn't actually exist and collapses when the lights come on. And, and so, you know, Fellini also, in a lot of his films, this one included, especially Eight and a Half, is dealing with uh, the concept of cinema on a meta level. And you see that in moments like that throughout the film. Um, you know, and so this goes on and Marcello's constantly chasing it. And like the interlude is the scene where he's kind of in that cabana on the beach outside of Rome and he talks to this girl where she seems to have something more substantial to say. And then she shows up at the very end of the film, but he can't hear her. Like, her words are lost in the wind. And so he's left continuing to search. Uh, you know, just watching this film, and I know you probably won't watch it again. That's fine. But just the structure of it, Dante-esque, the themes of it, the eternal city of Rome, the search for meaning, the, the desire... Not just like, and Fellini isn't writing this in a way to be like, see, you need the church. No, he's like putting his own internal struggle on the celluloid because he's living this out. He is not a believer, 
but yet he can't escape it. It's drawing him back in. It's a powerful, powerful tension. Would you say that's true, that in The Great Beauty, the main character does find what he's looking for, but in La Dolce Vita, that character does not find what he's looking for? Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. So, you know, The Great Beauty, then, we have a very similar character. And Jeff, I, I love him. He's this author who uh, has, he's written one book 40 years ago, and he's just now at the end of his life. It was very successful. Very successful. You know, he's a uh, Harper Lee <laughs> he wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, but he's very successful, and now it's like there's just nothing. He's at the end of his life, and it's it's all vapid. And uh, so I actually found a transcript of the script because I wanted to read a couple of things from him. Like one of the key moments thematically in this film, it's slightly towards the end, um, but he's at one of these parties and he says, for years people have been asking why I don't write another novel, but look at these people, this wildlife. This is my life and it's nothing. Like That's such a great moment. And then throughout the film, you know, his life, this facade starts to collapse and there's death and there's pain and, you know, he's losing friends and all of this. And then there's moments, though, where like the the epiphany shines on him. One of my favorite moments in this film is when he's talking to the guy who's had a picture taken of him every day of his life. And this is kind of a surreal moment. Yeah, yeah, I remember this. Because it's like, well, where would this actually exist? But it's kind of this... Terrence Malick's dream logic because all these pictures are there and the, the music there is so beautiful and the music in The Great Beauty tells you where you're at like is it vapid or is it like transcendent is it drawing you in and he sees this person's life before him picture after picture hundreds of them thousands of them as this guy and he's, he's looking at him and he sees a life and it's meaningful and he's struggling with that and so what's he looking for? He's looking for something that isn't nothing, something that's meaningful. And that's why to go to the end of the film with this image of this this ancient nun clawing her way up these stairs with all the strength she can to get to the foot of the cross is so powerful because that's what he's looking for. It's like, what would motivate someone to do this? And what's so great about this character, this nun, is that everyone else in the film is so vapid, like they're getting Botox injections, <laughs> that whole scene when they're at the doctor and they're at parties and it's it's drugs and sex and everything and it's it's all empty. And yet here is this nun who is without a doubt the least physically attractive character in the film. She's old, she's wrinkled, she looks like death. And she has found something meaningful in her life, something that motivates her with the very last strength she has to crawl her way to the foot of the cross. And then from there, we get this incredible, the ending monologue in this movie it is, like I said, it shook me and it did. Like I, I watched it last night and it's just been the whole day. This has just been in my head. You know, he says, this is how it always ends. So this is Jep talking in the, in the voiceover. This is how it always ends in death. But first there was life hidden beneath the blah, blah, blah. Everyone, everything settled to the bottom beneath all the hubbub of noise. The silence and the emotion, the excitement and the fear, the fleeting and sporadic flashes of beauty amid the wretched squalor and human mystery, all buried beneath the awkward predicament of existing in this world, blah, blah, blah. 
what lies beyond lies beyond, which I just, that's probably the translator more than the scriptwriter, but I love that turn of phrase. That is not my concern. Therefore, let this novel begin. After all, it's just a trick. Yes, it's just a trick. Meaning that what he's found is life, like not the nonsense, the blah, blah, blah. It's like get beneath that and find what actually is worth making your life worthwhile. And it's like what resonates with me about that so much is when I talk about, you know, okay, entertainment and watching stuff for fun is fine, but it's like you're actually here to deal with something. Art is meant to push you into something and, and to, to force force you to encounter the harsh realities of life like so much of the time that people spend on entertainment whether it's movies or tv or books or whatever it's just the blah 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 it's the crap that doesn't matter and so yes in the film that's symbolized by these orgies and the you know the parties and everything but it's like you can have quote-unquote sinless activity that's just the same thing but you haven't found anything that's going to make you crawl up these stairs with the last strength of your life and it's like what he's saying there what lies beyond lies beyond that is not my concern i don't know if he's found it and he's like he's resigning himself to the fact that there's what lies beyond death what lies beyond the moment of her reaching the foot of the cross and breathing her last, I don't know. And he's kind of punting on that question. But he's saying, what is going to be my concern is what gets her up those stairs. That's the life. And that's why like both these films are after that. And that's why, you know, whether, you know, you it's totally fine not to, but at least see like the pa- the filmmaking passion there because it's incredible. Yeah. I, I, that does help me appreciate it more. I yeah, still, I. I mean, between the two, I like the Great Beauty more. But I, I was just looking at. I saw reviews here on Letterboxd. There's a wide range. It looks like I'm wrong about La Dolce Vita. Most people just think that's great, but the Great Beauty has reviews. Yeah. From one star, two stars, up to four and a half to five. Like, so I, I think why Paolo, do you think it's so polarizing? Paolo Sorrentino has a a unique style that's not going to be for everyone. If it works for you, it works. Uh, if it doesn't, it doesn't. And also, you know, I mean, uh, Fellini is is one of the all-time great filmmakers, too. He's one of those people that you just, if you're going to interact with cinema uh, in a serious level, you, you kind of just have to bend the knee a little bit. And I don't love all of his movies. Don't get me wrong. He's far from, you know, my favorite filmmaker. But he's he's Fellini. You have to deal with him as in his greatness. And Eight and a Half and La Dolce Vita are the two that you just kind of have to bend the knee and accept their greatness. Yeah, I'll check out eight and a half. So our listener, John, commented on my review of Great Beauty and said, even though he didn't like this one, try Bicycle Thieves and Leia Ventura. Adventura? Yeah, uh, Antonioni, who's a, a little bit... I feel like you've recommended Bicycle Thieves. I before. love Bicycle Thieves. Have you seen La, oh, yeah. La yeah. Ventura? Yeah, it's also a criterion. And, uh, Which of those two do you like the most? Uh, uh, well, Antonioni is very cold. I, I have a harder time getting into his films. Bicycle Thieves is one of my top movies of okay. all time. It, it's just incredible. Okay. All right. Anything else you want to say about this, or do I shut this thing down? Shut it down. Well, listeners... That's just a taste of what you can get over at the Extra Feed, which uh, that's at our patreon.com slash the sci-fi Christian page. Wait a second. I'll say it again. Patreon.com forward slash the sci-fi Christian. That's where you can find all of our Patreon material, which, Ben, I just happened to look at something. I haven't really been keeping track of how many episodes we have over there. Lots. So, obviously, this is episode 
what did we say it was? 117 or 1,117. Last week when I was posting some of our most recent Patreon episodes, I was on some page that said, here's how many you have total. We're at like 453 episodes on the Patreon feed. Oh, that's exciting. I mean, five years of recording over there. So, that's awesome. Yeah, so listeners, lots over there if you want. You can jump on the extra feed for only $3 a month. Oh, and I'm going to tease something. I'm gonna tease. So we've been going through the, our book poster over there. So we're reading reading books from this book poster. I got you 100 books, essential novels mm-hmm. to read before we die. So we, we revisited... We're about to record next up tonight. Lord of the Flies, The Kill a Mockingbird, two books that I have s- snubbed. I've scorned and looked down my nose at for their basicness. And so I I don't dislike either of them, but I've had uh I think they're they're vastly overrated. That's been my opinion. So what I'm gonna tell you, one of them I have the same opinion on. One of them I radically changed my opinion. All right, so I don't know the answer, so I'm looking forward to that. And maybe radically changed for the better, or maybe radically changed for the worse. We'll see. All right, listeners, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Vandy Bone. And we're the Sci-Fi Christians signing off. Hey, goodbye.